Well, let's jump into this new sermon series that we're beginning today. We are, in, we are invited to think about a life that matters. We want our lives to count. We want our life to matter for eternity. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a few episodes from the life of Jesus leading up to Thanksgiving. And the question we're going to come back to is, is how can we live a life that matters for eternity? I used to spend summers with my grandmother in West Virginia, and my parents would send me up there for weeks at a time. I think the longest stretch that I had, I think I was up there for like five weeks with my grandmother. And as a kid, I loved it. I I enjoyed it. I never got homesick. I I, I just look forward to those times. But now that I'm a parent, I'm looking back and I'm like, I think my parents are trying to get rid of me. Like, I think they needed a break from me. And they were like, please take this devil child for five weeks. Uh, And so my grandmother was, was gracious and strong and able to do that. And so she would take me off their hands for a while. But I love spending time with my grandmother and my grandfather in West Virginia. And one of the things I was able to do was see my cousins. At the time, I had two cousins, uh, eight and seven. I was 11. Um, and, uh, and at uh, this particular visit, my brother was there as well. He would have been seven. So I was the oldest of these four kids that were all converging in my grandmother's house. And somehow she managed it all. Um, but we didn't have screens back then. You know, now four kids would have been entertained with some kind of screen. The only screen we had was an old tube TV that um, you could turn it to the UHF side and you could put some tinfoil on the rabbit ears. And at four o'clock, you could bring in a very grainy Scooby-Doo. And so that's what we looked forward to at four o'clock on the UHF dial. We would get a little bit of Scooby-Doo, but that was the only screen we had. And so we had to occupy our time in other ways. And so we would run around their farm and do all kinds of things. But in the heat of the day, we would find ourselves on my grandmother's porch and we would go to the hall closet and we would pull down a game. And it was my favorite game. It was the game of Monopoly. And here's what's so great about being the oldest of four kids playing Monopoly. You are wise to things that they are completely naive to. You know strategies. You know how to win at the game. And, and I loved playing Monopoly with them. And I won every single time because I knew the fundamental strategy of Monopoly. And if you have not learned this, I'm going to share it with you today. This may be the, the, the most important thing you hear today. It will transform your life. No, I'm kidding. I hope you hear a lot more than that today. But... In terms of Monopoly, there's a very clear strategy in that game. Your goal is acquisition. As fast as you can, as efficiently as you can, you have to acquire properties. That is the, that is the name of the game. And my cousins, they thought, this was, they thought this was shoots and ladders. They were playing some, you know, some, 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 some game where... You just go around the board as many times as you, as you try to go around the board more than anybody else. Or you try to, you know, just, just roll big numbers. And, and they didn't understand the strategy of acquisition. They thought to win the game, we just need to go around a lot. And every time we go around, we collect $200. And maybe we'll do that more than anybody else and we'll win the game. And the whole time, I'm saying, yeah, you go ahead and play that way. Because I know the secret. The secret is acquiring properties. 
I was 11 years old. I knew, what it, I knew what it was like to have my lunch money stolen. I've been around the block. I've lived by the principles of laissez-faire capitalism for a long time. And I knew how to win at Monopoly. And there in the clear mountain air of my grandmother's patio, oh, for five weeks I ruled the world. It was amazing. It was amazing. In fact, so like towards the end of the summer, my cousins formed these coalitions. They, 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 they eventually, they never could figure out the strategy of acquisition, and they would form these coalitions so that if they landed on each other's properties, the little properties that they did have, they would not make each other pay rent. They said, we've got to come together. If, if we don't come together and support one another, this guy's going to just rule the world. Ah, and I watched him do this, and I watched them forgive each other of rent, and and I watched them, you know, sell properties to one another to pay rent that they owed me. And I just watched all of it going down. And I knew that it was all in vain because I, I owned half the board. And in, and in just a few short moments, I would own their very souls. <laughs> I'm telling you, I was really into Monopoly. I was really into Monopoly. It was fun. And so the last day, before we had to go back home, their coalition fell apart. I collected the last white Monopoly dollar from my eight-year-old cousin. They were all bankrupt. I had everything, and I raised my hand in victory, and I expected confetti to fall from the patio ceiling. And it was my grandmother coming into the patio to say, okay, it's time to eat. Let's pack up the game. There was no victory parade. There was no pomp and circumstance. My cousins began to go to the board, and I watched in horror. It's like one by one, they would pick up my greenhouses, and they would put them in the box. And they'd pick up my red hotels. That's on Park Place. No, you can't do that. And they would put them in the box. And they took all my properties, and they put them into a stack, and they got a rubber band out of my grandmother's junk drawer and wrapped up the properties and carelessly tossed my empire into the box. And then they took my game token, the silver horse and its rider, and they threw it in the box with all the other losers, the car and the wheelbarrow and the thimble. Like, what was my horse and rider doing in there with the thimble? Like it deserved like its own spot, you know, but it was in there with all the other losers. And then the last moment was when they took the board and they folded it up and they placed it on top of everything else. And then they took the box lid and they put it on top of the box. And without any kind of ceremony or parade, they walked down to the hall and opened the hall closet and put it back up on the top shelf. And I learned something that day. Learn something that day that the people of God have known for quite some time, and that is this. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. And when the game is over, it, it all goes back in the box. And, and we're playing this game known as life, not the Parker Brothers version, the real version. We're, we're in this game of life and 
we are acquiring certain things. And there are certain strategies that we have to survive life or to make it in life or to be successful in life. But I have been with so many of you when the game for one of our loved ones was over and they had taken their last breath. There was no more property to acquire. There were no more goals to achieve. And it's true. When the game is over, all these things that we've acquired, our cars, our houses, our boats, our, our, our avenues for passive income, our rental houses, our portfolios, our cryptocurrency. I don't know if it goes in a box. It goes somewhere. Who knows? But all of that goes in a box. All of that goes in a box somewhere. And, and, and how many of us have been shaped by this American dream that says the way to win at life, here's the scorecard. The way to win at life is to acquire as much as you can and, and to just, just, just to go around as many times as you can. And as you do, to acquire as much as you can. And we have this goal of the good life. We have this vision of what the good life looks like. But there is this immutable fact of life. We cannot escape it. We cannot get around it. One day our game is going to end and everything we've worked so hard for is going to go in a box of some kind. And I know that acutely. I know what it's like to walk through my father's shop and I'm picking up his power tools and I'm putting them in a box. And then I'm going to his closet and I'm putting his suits in a box. And I'm going through the house and I'm gathering the things that were once very important to him, but they're going into a box and they're going to someone else or they're being sold on a yard sale. It all goes back in the box. And so what does it look like for us to live a life that matters? Because if we orient our life in such a way that we make it a game of acquisition, ultimately that's not going to count for eternity. And so Jesus is wanting us to, to orient our life in such a way that we live in ways that count for eternity. We live lives that matter for eternity. And so we have this story in Mark chapter 12 that Pastor Chad read for us, and, and let's revisit it. It's Mark 12, verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for those teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Wow, what a scathing indictment of the teachers of the law. They were part of what we would call the religious establishment. There was the Sanhedrin and it had Pharisees and Sadducees. And then there was this group of people known as the teachers of the law. They were experts in what the law of Moses said. And they were very important. They wielded a certain amount of authority uh, over the, 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 the temple and this whole religious complex that was such a dominant part of life in the first century. And, and Jesus shows us, he, he gives us a snapshot into what these, what these people looked like and the kinds of lives that they lived. They were living for themselves. They were wanting, they were acquiring, they were hoarding, they were grabbing a hold of everything they could get their hands on. Jesus even says they, 
They try to acquire the homes of widows in their thirst for acquisition. They make these lengthy prayers. And it really gives us a picture of the way we keep score in America. We keep score in America by living lives of acquisition. And this is how some people have decided that their life is going to count. Their life is going to count if they live this life of acquisition, just grabbing a hold of everything they can get their hands on. But following Jesus invites us to live by a different scorecard. And so Jesus shows us what that looks like. Look at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people, these teachers of the law, they threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. Now, one of the things, if we were to read this just top to bottom, you see a very abrupt transition. There's this indictment of the teachers of the law, and then all of a sudden Jesus is sitting down and and seeing this offering take place in the temple. And it's a classic move of of the gospel writer Mark. He he very often will put stories right next to each other. He's arranging his memory of, of of what Jesus' life was like. And so he has this memory of this teaching against the teachers of the law. And then he very strategically puts it right next to this episode where the widow puts in these two small coins. And what Mark is doing in arranging these stories is he's wanting us to compare and contrast these two ways of seeing life. On the one hand, there's a group of people that they've decided my life's going to matter if I acquire stuff. But then on the other hand, there is this person who's decided to live a different way. She's decided to play by a different scorecard. She lives a life of generosity. She lives a life in which she gives away what she has. And that is the contrast that Mark wants us to see. And we can contrast it with our vision of the good life, our American dream, whatever you want to call it. It stands in stark contrast to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says a life that matters is one of generosity, where you you freely share what you have for the sake of others. You freely share what you have for the sake of others. Not too long ago, our church board gathered. It was on a Saturday, and we had a board retreat. And this was the fundamental question that we were asking ourselves. What do we want to be known for? As Bentonville Community Church... Like, what are the marks of our church? When people think about our church, when they think about who we are, when they, when they think about the kind of people that are formed in this place and sent out into the world, what are those core values that we want to see embodied in the world? And so based on Scripture and, and who we were discerning God calling us to be, we came up with six core values. And here's one of them. Abundant generosity. We want to be a people of abundant generosity. And in that retreat, we said, well, what would it look like to define that with one sentence? And here's what we came up with. Abundant generosity 
We live with open hands. We live with open hands. Your church board, your leaders, was, that we gathered in prayer and we said, Lord, could, would you make us a people that live with abundant generosity? Would you make us a people that live with, with open hands? Because when you've decided to live with open hands, it is, it is, a, it is a position of trust in God. It is a position in which you say, Lord, I'm coming to you with open hands, recognizing my need. I'm a needy person. You are God. I am not. I'm dependent upon your grace. And so, Lord, would you put into my life, would you put into my hands what I need to live, what I need to thrive? And Lord, what I'm going to do is keep these things with open hands. Instead of closing my hands around them, Lord, as a person of abundant generosity, I'm going to live with open hands. And if, if there's something that you've put into my hand that someone else needs, then I'm going to allow you to take out of my hand and give to someone else. We're people of abundant generosity. We live with open hands. Now, the Bible calls this stewardship. And all throughout the biblical story, we see people living with this confession. And that is everything I have, every resource that I have is from the Lord. And it all belongs to God. As you think about the things that, that the legal documents, you have legal documents. They're called titles and they're called deeds. And somewhere on that legal document is your name. But don't think because your name is on that title that that house or that car is yours. A steward says it's God's. That everything I have is God's. And so it begins with that, that confession and stewardship is managing what God has given to us for his kingdom purposes. And so once we make that confession, we are closer to being like the widow in the story than we are the teachers of the law and the people who are living lives of greed and acquisition. It begins with this confession, Lord, everything I have is yours. Well, how do we get to that point? How do we come to a point in which we live with open hands and we recognize that everything that we have is from the Lord? There's a spiritual discipline. And it's called tithing. You see it throughout the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament where the people of God, they bring a tenth of their produce to the storehouse, to the temple, and they give it for the administration of the temple and for the worship and all the things that go on in the temple. You see that carried on throughout the Old Testament. You see Jesus affirm it. You see the early church practice it. And it's the spiritual discipline that as God puts things into our hands, a la your weekly de direct deposit, as God puts things into your hands, you, you say, Lord, 10% is yours. I'm going to tithe 10% of that to you, to the local church, for the work, and for the building of your kingdom. And you begin this rhythm of generosity. It's a regular reminder. Most of us have things that show up in our bank account regularly. And so regularly, the people of God are saying, Lord, thank you for putting that into my hand. And now here's 10%. And Lord, we're going to invest it in the local church. And we're going to allow you to bless and enrich the lives of people through that local church. It's a spiritual discipline. The people of God have been practicing it for hundreds of years. And every time we do that, 
We, God mediates his grace to us and makes us more like the woman in the story and less like the greedy people in the story. It's this regular formational thing that happens in our lives. And it's how we live in obedience to God and how we live with open hands. Friends, what happens when you invest in the local church? And when you practice tithing, what is God doing with that? If any of you were here last week, you saw it. God takes your tithes and he funds the work of of young discipleship. He funds the work of Pastor Diane and Pastor Aaron who are shaping your kids to be like Jesus. They're teaching them the story of Jesus. They're inviting them into a particular way of life. And eight of those kids last Sunday said, I'm all in. I'm all in with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And they were baptized into the Christian faith. That's through the work of your pastors and through the work of your church. When you make a gift to the local church, you're creating a platform. You know, God's given us a very particular vision for who he wants us to be. That vision is that we would be transformed by the gospel, that we would be equipped for ministry, and then we would be sent out on mission with God. That's our vision as a church. And every time you make a gift to the local church, you're funding that. Did you know there's not one local church body in Northwest Arkansas that has that vision? That's our vision that God has given us. And when you give, you're funding that and you're supporting that so that we can be that people in this community. There are things God has called us to do. He hasn't called anyone else to do. He specifically called Bentonville Community Church to do those things. There's five organizations that are going to receive a Thanksgiving box from us, and they're going to share them with people in their network that need them. Guess how many churches are doing that ministry? One. Ours. Bentonville Community Church made possible through your obedience to the Lord. To hold your resources with open hands. Pray for me this week. My wife is about to get on an airplane and she's going to two countries in Africa. She's going to land in Rwanda and she's going to meet with Nazarene leaders there. And then she's going to somehow, a plane, train, automobile, a dugout canoe, I'm not sure. But eventually she's going to make it to another country called the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And in this trip, she's meeting with local churches. And they are doing the work of compassion. They, are, they have child development centers and children are coming to their church and they're receiving a hot meal and they're hearing the story of Jesus and they're receiving resources that they wouldn't receive any other way. Guess who makes that possible? You do. Your generosity. Your commitment to hold resources with open hands. You see what God does? You see what God does when we live with open hands? When we receive from God and then we allow God to to take things out of our hands and to distribute them literally around the world to fund what he's doing, it begins with this confession, Lord, everything I have belongs to you. Now, Lord, I'm going to be obedient with what you've entrusted in my care. I'm going to invest in the local church. I'm going to live a life of generosity. So when we talk about giving a tithe, this is what you're funding. This is what you're participating in. And every gift moves you closer to being like the woman who gave all she had. In fact, 
it moves you closer to being like Jesus. That's what spiritual disciplines do. They're means of grace that move us to be more like Jesus. So I'll tell you one more thing about this story, this episode, this thing that happens there. As people are bringing in their gifts, what we know about the collection plate in the temple, it was intentionally designed to be loud. It was intentionally designed to be public. It wasn't discreet. And so what, what people would do is they would bring their Roman money and they would exchange it for temple money. This is exactly sort of uh, the, the, the rub that Jesus has with the money changers in the temple. And, uh, and so they take the Roman money, they would exchange it for temple money, and they bring their temple money into the court and they would give it. And if you had a lot, you might stay there for a long time and drop all the pieces of temple money into the collection basket or whatever it was, and you'd make a lot of noise. And so there's Jesus about to offer this teaching. There's the clanking and the clamoring of all the people that are well-resourced. They're giving their gifts. And you would hear that clanking and that clamoring throughout as people were doing that. They were doing it to be ostentatious and to make a show. But Jesus ignores all of them. What he highlights is the widow who takes two small copper coins, literally all she had, and discreetly drops them into the collection plate. And I want us to use our imagination for just a moment. You know, Jesus says this thing that, that is so famous. Like she gave all she had, all she had to live on. And there was a, one of Jesus' disciples was a financial expert. He was a guy named Matthew. He was a tax collector. And Matthew dealt with large sums of money, more zeros behind the, 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 the sums of money that Matthew would deal with, had lots of zeros behind it, more zeros than I'll ever see. And so he was an expert in money. And I can imagine this teaching just not really landing well with Matthew. Jesus, are you? I can imagine him saying to Jesus, um, hey, I don't know if you've done the math on this or not, Jesus, but you said she gave more than those other people that, you know, clanked and clamored around and poured all that money into the collection plate. I just want you to know that what she actually gave, uh, I figured it here, I've got my abacus and I did some calculations and what she actually gave was 0.00002% of what these other people gave. So like, can you really say she gave more? And, and this is where Jesus helps us understand God's economy. This is where Jesus says, oh, she absolutely gave away more. The way our translation has it is this, she gave all she had to live on. She gave all she had to live on. And the literal translation of that is, she put in her whole life. She put in her whole life would be a literal translation of what Jesus says. And he's contrasting that again with these teachers of the law and these people that are so well-resourced and they're giving the interest on top of the interest. It's money they may not ever miss. But this woman puts in her whole life. And I think in terms of stewardship, 
There's some of you here today, you, you've heard this message before. Periodically, pastors are going to get up and they're going to talk about giving to the local church and they're going to exalt 10% as the standard for, for a life of generosity and stewardship. But I, I, I want to make sure you hear this from Jesus. If you think this is about giving 10% of your income, you are shooting way too low. Because literally what Jesus says is she put in her whole life. God is not after your 10%. God is after your entire life. Every single part of who you are. Remember our baptisms yesterday or last week? The theme of that service was, are you all in? Following Jesus is a commitment to 100% of your life. Lord, everything I have is yours. I hold it with open hands. And Lord, I am all in for your mission in the world, for who you're calling us to be, my time, my talent, my treasure, my relationships. Father, they are all yours. And so we're invited to live in a, in a different way. Can you imagine Matthew's head spinning as Jesus says this? Kind of like our heads are spinning now. He clicks. There's not a financial formula to use to figure out, you know, what is the minimum I need to give to be obedient to the Lord? The, the equation completely flips for Matthew. Oh, he wants it all. He wants every part of me. I can imagine him taking his abacus and giving it to a kid who's passing by and saying, look, I'm not going to need this calculator anymore. There's no point in me doing any more calculations. Jesus has made it pretty clear that to follow him is to be 100% devoted and to fully trust in him. And so we live with open hands. We receive blessings from God and we freely give blessings to others. I want to tell you about my friend, Julie. It was 2003. Lauren and I were uh, both in school at the time. She was finishing up her degree at Sanford in Birmingham, Alabama. I was working on my master's there at Sanford. Um, I was sort of the, the primary breadwinner, if you will. Uh, I was working as a youth pastor at a church in North Birmingham. And, um, you know, let me just say it like this. Two full-time students, one income. Uh, times were tough. Finances were tight. Um, man, we wished we were living paycheck to paycheck. Um, we wish that was the case. I don't know how we made it, and, and I'm going to tell you a story about how we did, but, but God just provided for us in so many different ways. And God blessed us with a car. We initially had one car, and that just was, that wasn't going to work, and, and God blessed us with a second car, and and so there were some days where Lauren would go south to school in one car. I would go north to work in another car. And then she would be coming home and then I would be going to school. We would pass each other on I-65. Uh, that happened more often than not. So having two cars was a real necessity. And the, the car that God had blessed us with, you know, when, when God does this, when he opens up doors and, and blesses young pastors with cars, I mean, they're usually, they usually run, um, but they're not anything you're going to win a, you know, auto show contest with. 
Um, and at the time, this car ran. It ran pretty well for about a year and a half. And uh, then the transmission went out on it. And uh, we just made the decision to, to have the transmission serviced. And, um, you know, we actually did okay. The, the, the transmission repair was, as I recall, about $1,800. And those of you know, man, somebody gave you a really good deal on transmission service. And so literally scraped up every penny we had to get this car fixed because we had to keep running up and down the roads. And there was a week where we literally had nothing to eat. Um, fortunately, on Wednesday nights, our church served uh, a meal. We did not miss church on Wednesday nights. We were there. And Lauren had a friend. Her name was Julie. And she was also a student. And, and her husband was working and Julie was in school. And they were in like the exact same situation that we were in. And we weren't sure how we were going to eat that week. And Julie heard about what was going on. And we get a, 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 an envelope in our mailbox. And it has Julie and Chad's return address on it. And we open up this envelope. And, and there is a, a gift with a car, with a note from Julie. And said, hey, I hope you guys can use this this week. I'm praying for you. We believe in you guys and love the ministry you're doing. And we just wanted to bless you. And it was $150. And for someone in Julie and Chad's position to give someone like us $150, that was a tremendous amount of money. I don't know where in the world they would find $150 to give another student. And so we saw them not too long ago and we said, hey, we can't take this. Like, you guys, your car could go out. You mean your, your transmission could go out. You, you're going to need that. We can't take this from you guys. And, and we did everything we could to, to give it back. But Julie looked at me and Lauren, and she taught us a lesson about stewardship. And she said, no, the Lord told me to give it to you. God blessed us with a little bit extra this month. We weren't expecting it. And the Lord said, you guys needed it. And she said, you know, what, what you need to learn, Mark and Lauren, is sometimes you give and sometimes you receive. And this is one of those instances in which you get to receive. And maybe in the future you'll have the opportunity to give, but right now you're in a position to receive and we want you to have it. And it was a tremendous act of faith for her to bless us with that. That has always stuck in my mind as an as a, as a instance in which God used his people to bless me and to bless my family. And that's happened to hundreds of times throughout my life. But it was a few years ago, Julie and her husband Chad, they're now, um, they now have a, a beautiful family. They have three girls. They're beautiful. And we got their Christmas card. And on the Christmas card was this beautiful family but we noticed something about Julie. She had a covering over her head. And she had lost all of her hair. And she was wearing what's very common for women who are going through chemotherapy to wear some kind of covering over their head. And on the back of the Christmas card was her story of being diagnosed with ovarian cancer. As a lady in her mid-30s with three daughters, she shared just a little bit about what that journey has been like and, and what her prognosis was. And the thing I remember about that Christmas card and what Julie said 
And she said, I am fully trusting in the Lord. My life is in his hands. I am his and he is mine. A tremendous statement of faith from a young lady in her 30s facing the threat of dying. And I thought, what is it? How, how do you, how do you, how is a faith forged so that in your 30s, facing the prospect of death, you can confess, I am in the Lord's hands? Like, how does one forge that kind of faith? How does one live with that kind of trust and obedience in God? And my mind was taken back to that day on the campus of Sanford University when she looked at me as a 23-year-old and said, Mark, sometimes you give and sometimes you receive, but through it all you trust the Lord. And what I want you to see in Julie's story is that there was a season in her life in which she could control the variables. There were levers for her to pull, there were buttons for her to push, and she had control of those. And in obedience to God, she surrendered something that God had blessed her with. And it made her more like Jesus, and it forged a faith in her so that now in her mid-30s, she is facing something in which she has no control over. There is no lever for her to pull. There's no button for her to push. There's no magic formula. There is a team of doctors who are doing their absolute best trying to cook up a certain cocktail of drugs to keep her alive. But other than that, she has only one recourse, and that is to trust fully in God. And that kind of trust in her mid-30s, it didn't happen all of a sudden. It happened as a 23-year-old person who stepped out in obedience and who walked with the Lord and said, God, I'm going to live with open hands. My life is yours. Whatever you want to put into my hands, I will receive. Whatever you want to take out of my hands, I will freely give, but I trust in you. And friends, this is the kind of life we're called to live. This is the kind of scorecard that we need to keep so that we live a life that matters. Because one day, if it's not today, we're going to be facing things that we have no control over. And I pray that, that we will have forged a faith. I pray that we will have made decisions in obedience with the will of God that forge a faith that shape us to be like Jesus so that when that day comes, we can say in full confession and trust, you know what? The same God that was with me when I'm 23 is with me now. My life is in his hands. I fully trust in him. That begins right now with the people of God saying, Lord, all I have is yours. Lord, I fully give you my heart. It's all yours.